Somewhere north of Oslo, in the Norwegian countryside, in this little commune, this little municipality called Kopang, there is a Stavkirke. Stave Church is the translation, I think. But it kind of feels weird to use the translation because even though uh, Stave Churches used to be found elsewhere in Northwestern Europe, they are now mostly a Norwegian thing. I think there's only two of them outside of Norway, if I'm not mistaken, of those that are left. And Stavkirke, they are these very old wooden churches And they were built using a certain technique with so-called staves. It has to do with the architecture of it, and that's where the name comes from. And they used to be widespread around Norway, uh, but now only, only a very few are left. And I have visited a number of them. They're very interesting to see. But what is peculiar about this one Stavkirk in, in Kopang, though, is that it isn't old at all. Well, most of these older ones are hundreds of years old. This one is actually brand new. And you find it in this retreat place called the uh, Lia Gord. And it's a really, really special place. Uh, and over the years, they have built a number of small chapels spread all over the property. Uh, different kinds of chapels. Some are just an altar inside a small wooden hut. Some of them are chapels that had been built from the ground up. And their most recent project, though, most of these are small chapels, but their most recent project has been building a Stavkirke. And it's actually quite an impressive accomplishment, and I would recommend going and visiting if, if you have the time. And I was there last February on a retreat, and I spent some time in this church, which is called Johanneskirke, or John's church in a reference to John the Baptist. And two things gripped my attention and what I might call my spiritual imagination as I was there in this place. Two altarpieces. An altarpiece is, is the, like here we have this big one with Jesus, right? Right here, which is embroidered or I forgot the name of the technique, right? That's an altarpiece. Two altarpieces. One was in the side chapel. Yeah. Leah Gord is full of these little chapels and prayer places uh, tucked in corners. And, but this one, I, I think, was a bit different. You go through the door on the left side of the altar inside Johannes Hitka. And through the door in the left side, which you might think might lead to a sacristy, it leads into a small chapel. And through that door, there is this small side chapel with a little altar and a, a kneeling bench at the far end of the chapel. And as you go to that place, yeah, above the altar, there's a window. And as you go to this kneeling bench and you kneel down before that altar, you realize that the window is the altarpiece. As you kneel down, you see through it. And as you look through it, you are met by a breathtaking view. This church is on a hill. And you are met by a breathtaking view of the valley below with its hills 
and the lake and the winding topography of Norwegian nature with the hills and all of that. So the window set right over the altar, right in front of the little kneeling bench. It frames the beauty of those valleys and invites you to be present. So that's one altarpiece. The other altarpiece is in the main altar of Johannes Hirkin. And it is a painting covering the back wall of the altar. And it is a painting depicting John the Baptist baptizing Jesus Christ. And that's not an uncommon theme, and perhaps one to be expected in, in a church called John's Church, Johannes Hirke. What is special about this one, though, is that the geography of the image mirrors the geography of the surrounding woods, of the surrounding waterways, and of the surrounding valleys. So the forest surrounding the lake where Jesus is being baptized is very much a Scandinavian forest. And if you walk out the door of the church, you're going to see the same trees. The lake is unmistakably a Scandinavian lake. And John and Jesus, they look very much like everyday folk Norwegians. Now, we need to stop for a moment and, and recognize that all of this can also be very problematic. And that needs to be said, right? A significant portion of the Christian church has been whitewashing Jesus for a significant part of, of history and to this very day keeps on doing it. And that is extremely problematic and extremely harmful. And that needs to be said, right? So let's make this clear just so we don't... <laughs> get any, any mis misunderstanding. The historical Jesus did not look like Marvel's Thor, okay? That's not what Jesus looked like. Willingly or unwillingly assuming that he looked like that is already problematic, and exporting or enforcing that image is straight out harmful. But that is not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about a place and a time. I'm not talking about a cathedral in the center of power. I'm talking about a church tucked in a Norwegian valley. A place and a time. And I'm talking about kneeling at this side chapel and contemplating these valleys through this altarpiece of the window and then seeing this Jesus being baptized in that very ecosystem. And I found the image beautiful, moving even, as I looked at it. But something I believe was missing from it. Something that, now that I think of it, is perhaps missing from most depictions of Jesus' baptism. It's a common theme in, in art history and in church art. And that something missing is a look of utter confusion on the face of John the Baptist as he baptized Jesus. I don't know how you do that in a painting, but I feel like it should be there. Of the gospel writers, St. Matthew is the one that most clearly reveals John's confusion when he, when, when he Matthew, has John trying to stop Jesus, actually, actually and saying, I need to, to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? 
And to understand John's question and, of course, his confusion, we need to know something about John's baptism, about John's message, right, and John's ministry, and also about his message about the coming Jesus. So John the Baptist uh, was a relative of Jesus, a cousin or something like that, but he comes before Jesus, and he is a Nazarite, which means he is somebody who has set apart his life as an ascetic. He lives in the desert. He doesn't cut his hair. He dresses camel hair. He identifies with the religious community that, is, uh, that, that sets their life apart from the normal life to give a message. And John, when he is uh, grown up, starts preaching, and his preaching is, we need to repent because the kingdom of God is near. And part of that ministry is that John starts baptizing. Now, baptism is not something that uh, Christians invented. It's not even something that the Jews invented. There's several, this notion of a ritual purification in water is actually quite common throughout the world, but it has a peculiar taste in the, in the Jewish setting. And in the case of John, what he is saying is, we come for repentance. So you come to the waters, you repent, you recognize the reality of sin in the world, of brokenness, you're part in it, you go under the water, and you come back as a symbol of leaving that behind. Right? Symbol of repentance, of recognition of that, and of committing to some sort of new movement. And John is not a... John is not a delicate person, let's put it that way. His message is harsh, it's straightforward. When he sees the religious authorities coming to the water, he calls them a brood of vipers. And he's shining a big light on everything that he feels, and, he, and, and based on, on, on the prophetic uh, narrative, is wrong with the world. All the abuses of authority, all the brokenness of people, and he's saying, we need to name this stuff and we need to repent. And then he's also saying, there's coming one after me who is more powerful than me, and my job is to make us realize what a mess we're in so that this one who comes after me can rescue us from it. And he is so much more powerful that I'm not even worthy of untying his sandals, and while I'm here baptizing with water, he will baptize with the very Spirit of God. That's John's message. So why did John react as he did in the Gospel of Matthew? Because how could the chosen one of God, one with power to baptize with the very Spirit of God, take part in something as human, as inherently human as John's baptism? Repentance and forgiveness are not something for the gods, much less for the God Almighty. This act is so intrinsically connected to suffering and pain and brokenness and frailty. That's why one goes to the water. And that's why we have John's confusion. With this Sunday, as I mentioned earlier today, we are officially in a new season in the liturgical calendar of the church, which is called the season of Epiphany. And Epiphany means an opening up, or a revelation, right? And, 
And the season of Epiphany is all about the revelation of Jesus Christ as God. Perhaps we could also say the revelation of God in Christ. But as the, as the church calendar goes around in Christmas, we have focused on incarnation, on God becoming human and the coming of God as human. In Epiphany, we focus on, on the revelation that this Christ, this human being, is in fact God. It's a bit of where the light sheds. So the revelation of Christ as God or of God in Christ. And it's a fairly common tradition that we start the season of Epiphany with the story of Jesus' baptism. There's something to be said, after all, about the vision of the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus as a sign that he was indeed the anointed one of God. And that is a scene in most of the Gospels associated with the baptism of Jesus. But there is also something to be said about where this chosen one of God is as this happens and about the setting. Now, the gospel writer John does not explicitly tell us of Jesus' baptism. John is the gospel that comes in through all weird angles and stuff (laughs) compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he does not tell us of Jesus' baptism. We get that story from the other gospel writers, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we also hear from them, from the other gospel writers, that it is in the context of the baptism of Jesus that some witness to the Spirit of God coming over Jesus in the form of a dove. Maybe you've seen the symbology of the dove in churches, right? It comes from there. And different gospel writers leave room for sort of different interpretations as to if only Jesus saw this vision, if everybody around there saw it, if John the Baptist and Jesus saw it, or how exactly that works. In John's gospel, though the baptism is not explicitly mentioned, it is clear that John saw this vision, again, of the Spirit of God coming and resting on Jesus. And this is how John tells the story, and it's in, uh, it's in John 1. From uh, verse 29, and you have it on the, on the screens there as well, hopefully. I will read it, and you can listen. And if Yeah, there you go. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen And I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you We'll see. So they went 
and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Epiphany, the revelation of Christ's divinity. There he is, the one who surpasses me, says John the Baptist, and came before me, even though John, in human terms, is older than Jesus. There he is, the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit, God's chosen one. There he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet this chosen one, if we are to take into account all the gospel writers, is going into the water to be baptized by John, taking part in this ritual in which humans dare to name and get in touch with the wholeness of our humanity with no pretense. What does that mean? That Jesus is there in the water with the sinners in their desire for forgiveness and transformation. There's a whole theological can of worms there. But there he is. Whichever conclusions we want to take out from there, there he is. And then again, what does it mean that John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God? For those of us who grew up in church, we might think that this is very clear, right? We think, we sing uh, or declare Christ to be the Lamb of God in the context of the liturgy of Holy Communion, remembering his death and his resurrection, Yet if we go deep with the biblical texts and the context, it is nothing but clear, actually. Yes, the lamb was an animal used for sacrifices in the temple, but generally not sin sacrifices, not sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins, but whole burnt offerings, which were a different category of sacrifice and a whole other thing. Yes, there is the Passover lamb in which the Jews remembered their, their, their redemption from Egypt, their being freed from Egypt in which they sacrificed the lamb and marked the doorpost with its blood so that they would not die. Right? There's a Passover lamb that meant deliverance from death. But again, there is not there a connection to repentance or forgiveness, at least not of the Israelites who were doing the sacrifice. And yes, there is a reference to Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac and the sheep provided in its stead, But that story is also rife with other theological issues, and the animal involved is not specified as a lamb, and there is no direct connection in that story to the idea of removing sins. Now, I could go on, but my point here is actually not to dismiss those connections, but rather to point out that John's declaration of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is not a declaration that gives us a final clear answer as to who Jesus was and what he was about and what is the mechanism of his work. It also didn't give that direct, immediate, clear answer to John and his followers. Rather, what it did is it launched them deeper 
deeper into a landscape of metaphors and images that already inhabited their religious world and that had meaning to their understanding of who God is and who they were and how they moved in the world. And they're in the middle of all of this trying to figure it out deeper into the question of who Jesus was and what he was about. Deeper into the question. And though the declaration of John does tell us that Jesus somehow takes away the sin of the world, John's declaration tells us very little of how exactly that is to unfold. And though we don't have time right now, it's worth pointing out that sin is singular in John's declaration. It takes away the sin of the world, meaning this is about something else or something more or something other than individual religious moral standing. So what do these disciples of John the Baptist do when they're suddenly launched into all of this, right? By John's declaration, by the person of Jesus, by the image, by the baptism, by all of these things happening. These people who have been hearing John's message and now hear John and see John point to Jesus with those words, what do they do? They follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. They go See what he's all about. And as they do that, Jesus turns to them with what are, and this is interesting, what are his very first words in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel according to St. John, these are the first words to come out of the mouth of Jesus. The very first words to come out of the mouth of this one whom John the gospel, the gospel writer, introduced in chapter 1 as being the light of the world. The word become flesh, the one full of grace and truth like the Father. The one whom John the Baptist declared to be the chosen one of God and the Lamb of God. And the first words that come out of his mouth are a question. What do you want? What do you want? And actually, it's a somewhat unhappy translation, a bit reductive, because this could better be translated as, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? What are you seeking? What are you seeking? If the question is surprising, Perhaps the reply from these disciples is even more so. They don't ask for explanations about all these theological conundrums and spiritual mechanisms of redemption. They ask Jesus, where is he staying? Where are you staying? And Jesus invites them in, invites them to see, to hang out with him and to find out, and they do. And it's not that Jesus doesn't say more about himself and what he was about. He definitely does. And the Gospels are filled with this stuff. But those sayings are also less packaged answers and more open invitation. This Lamb of God in the Gospel of John starts saying, I am. God says, I am. Especially in Jewish 
literature and oral tradition, God says, I am. It is God's personal name in the Hebrew scriptures, the sufficiency of God's being. What's your name? What name shall I call you by? Moses asks him by the burning bush. I am that I am. And Jesus says, I am. Again and again in the Gospel of John, as we will find out through this epiphany season. But these I am, they are incarnated questions of invitation and of closeness. This is the Lamb of God that, oddly enough, for a lamb says, I am the good shepherd. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who are you? I am the good shepherd. And this, John the Gospel writer records in John chapter 10 from verse 11. And I'm just going to read from 11 to 18. It's just a part of the, of the text. Gospel according to St. John, chapter 10, from verses 11 to 18. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. There is so much to say here, but here is, again, a new image, a new metaphor, a new something to speak of the unspeakable. but again, an invitation and a language that speak of intimacy, of one who knows his sheep and is known by them. And that language is repeated as Jesus speaks of himself as the good shepherd. I know them. They know me. I call them. They come because they know my voice. I care for them because I love them, and I hear their voice, and they know me just like I love, just like I know the Father, and the Father knows me. one who knows his sheep and is known by them, who lays down his life for them and for all of those he knows and loves, which apparently are more than we can understand. There are other sheep. This shepherd that is the lamb, this lamb of God that shepherds, that knows and makes himself known in spaces of life and living and hunger, and thirst, and dying, fullness. This Jesus who is baptized with us, or is it us with him? In the reality of sin, and life, 
that surrounds us and inhabits us. In the very ecosystem that we inhabit. This Jesus that raises from the water and from death, still surrounded by these hills and waterways and sinful and deathful realities that we are surrounded by and take part of. Because we are still surrounded and part of it all, aren't we? And we could, I guess, try to lock down an answer, a mechanism, a formula, a perfect description of the Word made flesh. Though which language we might possibly use for that is beyond me. Or we could do like John's disciples and allow this landscape of metaphors and language of rituals and expressions to be one that we inhabit with Jesus and only because he's somehow there. I'm not sure we can ever fully understand the how. History of the church and of theology is full of debates and arguments and divisions over this. But there's this profound interaction between Jesus and these disciples. This immense and intimate pair of questions in John 1. They come after Jesus and Jesus asks, what are you seeking? And their answer is you. Isn't it? You. Where are you staying? Isn't that a great answer? It's not like, explain us this stuff. (laughs) What's this? What's that? No, where are you staying? What are you seeking? You. Where are you staying? Come and see. And they go. And they stay with Jesus, and they dine with him, and they eat with him. And here is God, I am. Where are you staying? I'm staying with you. I'm staying with you. What are you seeking? Jesus asks, and and we answer you, the good shepherd. The good shepherd. The one who knows us and makes himself known and whom we somehow know. So tell us, where are you staying? Where are you staying? That's where we want to be. We want to stay with the good shepherd. And Jesus says, I'm staying with you. I'm staying with you. I am the lamb the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Staying, by the way, is again a limited translation. The Greek verb means to abide, to remain, to continue, to 
dwell. Yeah, there's a sense of, of permanence and of intimacy, like a home. Who is Jesus? How does he dwell in the surrounding and internal ecosystem of our lives? How does his death and resurrection inhabit our baptism and our surroundings? And our repentance and our forgiveness and our trying again and our falling. These are questions that set us on the move. They set us on the move towards God, towards ourselves, towards each other. And especially if we heed the call and the direction pointed by John the Baptist sets us on the move towards and with Jesus Christ of Nazareth. What are you seeking? You who seek. You. So tell us, where are you staying? With you. I'm staying with you. The Lord's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you to the reality of your lives, the fears that assail you and the hopes you yearn for, that he may bring you his peace. So go. In the name and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And serve each other. Serve the world. Serve the Lord joyfully. Amen.